This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. This episode of Conversations with the President is proudly brought to you by CBIA Lawyers Financial. Visit lawyersfinancial.ca to learn about exclusive financial solutions to help you build and protect wealth. Welcome to Conversations with the President. I'm CBA President Ray Adlington, and I'll be your host in the series of podcasts discussing two issues very dear to my heart, diversity and inclusion. Full disclosure, I'm a middle-aged, straight, cisgendered white man. I do have some experience of being excluded in my life, but I've never had to worry about being discriminated against based upon my race, color, gender, or sexual orientation. As president of a national organization that speaks for the country's lawyers, however, I think it's important for me to find out about the things that people not in my position of privilege have experienced. So in this series, I'll be talking to a cross-section of Canadian lawyers about what impact their differences have had on their decision to become lawyers, on where and how they practiced, who they practiced with, and the effect of their experiences on their lives. We'll also be talking about what needs to change for the next generation. My guest for this inaugural edition of Conversations with the President is Toronto's Rithu Basin, an expert in the field of diversity and inclusion. Ms. Basin spent nearly a decade working in law firms on Bay Street before completing an executive MBA and starting her own firm, Basin Consulting Inc. She now travels around the globe speaking about diversity and inclusion. She also has a solid following on social media, including a YouTube channel populated with short and snappy talks on topics such as the neuroscience of bias and effective sponsorship. Last year, Ruthu published her book, The Authenticity Principle, which has been called a rallying cry to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the podcast, Ruthu. Thanks for having me, Ray. There are many ways of identifying you without saying this, but you'll likely have noticed that the one way I didn't describe you is as a woman of Indian origin. Let's start with that. In your walrus talk, you tell the story of a white friend saying she wasn't sure she was allowed to mention your ethnicity. Frankly, I think that's something that I, along with many other white people do, tie themselves into knots not to mention color. Many people, period, go out of their way not to mention an identifying thing about the other person, like weight or a physical disability that might be sensitive, thinking it's polite not to notice the elephant in the room. Are they being too polite? Oh, that's such a good question, Ray. Setting the bar uh, high. My answer is uh, going to be um, less clear-cut. I'm going to say it depends. So, And I'm saying it depends for a few reasons. I think that in Canadian culture, we have been socialized to be uh, what we call colorblind, which means we have been taught over generations that in order to be fair and equal, to be inclusive, to not notice people's cultural differences, or if we notice them, to not mention them. And this has served us well, or so we have thought, but the problem is that we're now in a place where the pendulum has swung so far to the right, where we feel very uncomfortable in moments where it would make sense to describe someone by their cultural identity we, we don't do it because we think, oh, no, if I mention that she's Indian or describe the person as being black or indigenous, well, that's going to make me racist. So I shouldn't do it. Or if I mention that the person is a woman or um, uses a wheelchair or whatever culture, whatever the descriptor is tied back to cultural identity, we're shy to go there. And I think what is really important to note is that it's it's completely fine to describe someone by their cultural identity 
if it is if it makes sense to do that in the moment if you're describing them to identify them for example versus if you are using you are identifying someone by their cultural identity and there's negative messaging or meaning attached to it. So let me give you a really quick example. I was at a restaurant with friends a while back, and uh, we're sitting at the table and we're waiting for someone else to join, one of my friends. And uh, the, my friend is an East Asian man. And we're at the table and waiting for him. And then he comes in and he's at the doorway. And I turn and I said, to everyone, I said, oh, my friend is here and uh, he'll be joining us. And everyone looks at the door and someone said, oh, which one is he? And I said, oh, it's the, it's the Asian man. And someone leaned over and whispered to me, isn't that racist to say that? And I was like, wow, this is another example of how like the politically correct pendulum colorblindness has put us in a place where someone has asked, who is your friend? And to describe him, I can't refer to his cultural identity. So the problem isn't me saying, oh, he's, it's the East Asian man at the door. Uh, in fact, that's perfectly fine. The problem is when we say the East Asian man at the door, and you know what that means, you know, those East Asians, and we start attaching negative meaning to it. Now, from that being said, from a workplace perspective, how we describe people's cultural identities, it's important for us to be mindful about that. If it's being used to describe someone and who they are, to identify them um, or differentiate them. Like who, who is Ritu? Oh, she's the uh, third year associate who's on the, um, who's in corporate. She's East Indian. Um, she went to Western law school, like that type of thing, I think is fine. But it's, if the only description that we are using to, in describing someone is their cultural identity, then that becomes a problem too. So it, this is one of those judgment things that uh, we develop over time. I think the biggest takeaway here is that for a lot of us, we have been programmed or conditioned, as I was saying earlier, to not even notice someone's cultural differences or to push them down. The, the, my takeaway for everyone listening is after today, we have to become more comfortable as a culture, as a society, with noticing people's cultural differences, recognizing them, understanding them, celebrating them. And, and one of the, the most important pieces of this is that if we, when we don't notice cultural differences or we push someone's cultural differences down, a few th negative things happen. One, we miss out on the opportunity to determine what is the bias that attaches in our brains to that person's cultural identity. And we also miss out on the opportunity to adjust and adapt our behavior to meet people where they are as opposed to expecting them to conform and become like us. So noticing cultural differences is critical. And how would you describe your own cultural identity? Yeah, uh, another really good question. So I was born in Canada to Indian parents. So when I say Indian parents, my parents were born in India. And by culture, we are Punjabi, which is, so Punjab is a province or state in India. And uh, our faith is called Sikhism. I am a Sikh. And so Sikh is spelled S-I-K-H. It's pronounced Sikh, not Sikh. And so I, I identify as someone who is South Asian, Punjabi, Sikh, and Canadian. I'm fiercely proud of being Canadian. But I think uh, uh, in my videos and blogs that I do online, I've talked a lot about how I felt very culturally confused growing up because I had a foot in two cultures. I had a foot in Canadiana. I had a foot in 
uh, Punjabi Indian culture. And uh, it was a struggle to belong in both. Um, and I would say it's only been recently in my adult life that I have come to a place where I feel comfortable knowing that I'm actually a mishmash of cultures, that that feeling of being an outsider, both in white Canadiana and, and then in uh, my Punjabi culture, uh, I was able to reconcile it by saying, you know, I'm actually a mishmash of cultures. I can have my foot in a few different doors. And, and actually, really, uh, when someone says to me, like, how do you see yourself culturally? I would say that I, I actually see myself more as a woman of color navigating the world. The, the intersections of my gender and my race uh, are so pronounced for me because as a woman, the way I live through the world is so heavily influenced by being brown skinned. And then as a brown skinned person, it's also so heavily influenced by being a woman. So for me, that the intersectionality there is so so pronounced. Uh, and then the other thing that I'll mention, is, and I've, I've been thinking a lot about this lately and talking more about it, the, the class for me is a really interesting cultural identity uh, as well. I still feel like the girl who grew up in the frugal household, like a fish out of water in moments where I'm surrounded by people who are economically similarly situated, or I'm, I'm belong to that elite circle, but I'm like, I'm not like this because this is not how my brain actually thinks because this is not how I grew up. So it's, it's a really interesting element of cultural identity that I haven't, uh, that I've, I've thought a lot about and now I'm talking more openly about because I think this impacts so many of us. So that, that's an interesting segue. I wanted to sort of speak about your career in law. As sort of a working class sick woman, what was your experience in the Toronto law firms? Yeah, you know, I I would say that on a positive note, I I had some really great people who supported my career advancement, who were my sponsors, my advocates, my champions, who who saw in me uh, talent and potential, and really helped to cultivate that. And I'm so grateful because I think my success in the legal profession has situated me in a place now where I'm able to run my diversity and inclusion cons uh, consulting practice in, in, in the way that I am. And I'm so grateful for that. At the same time, it was really hard. It was a really hard experience for me. I felt I felt out of place. I felt like an outsider a lot of the time that I was... Uh, when I was working on Bay Street and in the legal profession exclusively. So I I can even remember being a first-year law student at Western, this is almost 20 years ago, and counting, we had um, what's called an actus reus, uh, an on, uh, sorry, a printed copy of the student directory for all three years because the internet really didn't exist back then. And I remember counting the number of people of color. So this was me identifying for others that you're of color, me counting through the actus in year one. In my year, there were only four of us who I would have said were people of color and out of a group of 150. And then I went to Bay Street and I was, uh, I started my articles in 2000. So again, almost 20 years ago. And there were people of color in my article in class at Tories, but none of us talked really about our experiences as people of color, or we, if we did, it was behind closed doors. So the, the discussions around diversity back then were really about women's advancement. Race was not brought into it. 
and yet race was the underrepresented cultural identity, uh, or I had a spotlight on it for myself anyways, because so much of what was around me was unfamiliar. There were so few people of color in leadership roles on Bay Street across the corporate echelons, let alone in the legal profession. I did not have the entrenched networks that a lot of people did in the business community or even in the legal community. Um, when I started law school, the first day of law school, I had only ever met one lawyer in my entire life, and it was a sick man uh, from my community. So, so I didn't, um, I didn't know what the game was about. I didn't understand the game, and uh, I had to learn it very quickly. And when I learned the rules of the game, what I saw, what I learned was that you have to conform to get ahead. And when I say conform, you have to change who you are to the dominant cultural way of being, the dominant culture that made up the leadership ranks, which at the time and even now continues to be a white, male, straight, affluent, um, normative. And, the, and, and so it meant a lot of changing who I am and conforming. And it also meant a lot of insecurities. I, I felt really insecure. I felt like an imposter. I felt like any moment now they're going to figure out that I actually didn't grow up fancy and I didn't have a lot of money growing up. And a lot of this fancy stuff they're talking about is unfamiliar to me and all of that. So, so it was really hard. I spent 10 years working in the trenches of the legal profession, first practicing. And then I was the director of uh, legal talent, essentially, at, at Steichman Elliott in Toronto. It got easier towards the tail end of the 10 years, but that's because by then, that point, I had learned how to play the game. I had learned how to conform. So you spoke about interrupting bias, and I'm interested in any strategies and tips that you would have to share with the listeners about how they can do that when they notice it in themselves. Noticing that someone has black skin or brown skin isn't the problem. Uh, it's the, the, where does my brain go when I see that someone has brown skin or black skin? Like, what, what meaning does my brain attach to someone having black or brown skin? So a, a really effective bias interrupter is to start to clock cultural identity and, and differences in others, and then pause and say to yourself, okay, what does my brain say about transgender people? What does my brain say about Muslim people? What does my brain say about white men? Straight, able-bodied, uh, affluent, white men in positions of leadership. What does my brain say about them? Like, we are directing bias towards everyone. This is One of the things that when I'm teaching bias, about um, what I say is, everyone is dishing it out and everyone's on the receiving end of it. Everyone's getting biased. So we really want to be in a place where we are more clear about what our brain holds. And this strategy that I've just shared is really helpful to unearth what the conscious and unconscious, more importantly, brain holds. And how would people begin to learn about the biases that they personally hold? Problem number one is we don't know what we don't know and we don't know what biases we hold. So step one is to identify what are my biases. Well, the way in which you do that is the exercise that I just described. Another tool that you can use is uh, Harvard's Implicit Association Test, or IATs for short. You can Google that, just Harvard's IATs. Uh, they take about five minutes a test to do. They're free. They're confidential. You don't even need to put your email address in. You go online, take them. They're, there's uh, a test on gender, on race, on sexual orientation, on nationality, and so much more. And it will unearth for you what your biases are. 
but then the next step is, okay, so these biases I have, they're wrong. For example, that certain racialized communities are less smart, uh, that, that women, that, um, women are more family oriented than being career oriented or aren't interested in their career advancement. The people who have lived experience with disabilities are less competent or intelligent. I mean, I could go on and on naming biases, whatever the biases are that you hold that the next, once you've identified what they are, it's the interruption of them. And there's a number of ways to interrupt biases. Uh, first of all, we become more mindful. So we hear the voice in our heads making the negative comments. And when we do, we pause and we say to ourselves, okay, is this true? Where did I learn this incorrect information from? What is the correct information? And focusing on the correct information and reinforcing that by thinking about it, thinking about it. Uh, so basically finding positive evidence that replaces the negative beliefs we hold. Another must do is uh, rooted in what we call contact theory. We know that repeated positive contact, repeated meaningful positive contact with people in our out group brings them into our in group, which means interacting, socializing, working in a meaningful, positive way with people we don't normally have interactions uh, and have that those repeated positive interactions. And when I say repeated positive interactions, what I'm talking about is the are the opportunities that we have that help us to learn more about a person so that we can replace the incorrect assumptions we hold about them and then also uh, be in a place where our brains shift from the, oh, you're not like me and therefore you're uncomfortable uh, to me to a place of, oh, you are like me. You are more like me than I thought because same we are, we're attracted to sameness. But then don't just stay in the land of sameness push yourself to learn about differences because the fear of differences is what keeps us away from people who are not like us. And this sort of commentary about embracing differences uh, brings me naturally to your recent book uh, entitled The Authenticity Principle, Resist Conformity, Embrace Differences and Transform How You Live, Work and Lead. I'll say that you had me at resist conformity, but I'm interested in uh, the authenticity principle generally. Mm-hmm. So the authenticity principle is about making a commitment to yourself to be who you are as much as possible. It's an ideology, it's a principle that we embody uh, so that we can be bringing our, our, who we are, especially what makes us different, to bear in our interactions as much as we can. And in fact, if I were to break down the definition of authenticity based on my work and research, which I showcase in the book, what I can tell you is that authenticity is the consistent practice of choosing to know who we are, to embrace who we are, and to be who we are as much as possible so that we feel more connected to ourselves, so that we feel happier about who we are. And that's what the research says, that when we know, embrace, and be who we are as much as possible, we actually will be happier, that we bring this spirit into our interactions with others uh, and because we have this pulsing in our energy, like this authenticity, we invite others to do the same back with us or to us. And and in this regard, my work has shown me that uh, being authentic, it's, it's a magnet. It's contagious. Like when I do it with you, you're more likely to do it back with me because I'm signaling to you I, I'm safe, I'm vulnerable, uh, I, I'm sharing with you all of who I am. Please do the same. And thereby we create far more meaningful 
rooted relationships, which is not just happy, which is not just better from a personal happiness perspective, but from a relationship building perspective, it's critical. And, and then of course, in the legal profession, we're in a service-based industry, how we develop one-on-one relationships with clients is critical. Authenticity is so important for that. And of course, when we lead with this spirit and we work with this spirit, we end up creating legal workplaces that are far more inclusive because at the end of the day, authenticity is the fundamental ingredient ingredient, uh, to inclusion. If we want to truly be inclusive, we have to create environments where people can be who they are, bring their whole true cultural selves, authentic selves to work. And we do this by embracing the authenticity principle as an individual, as a leader, so that we signal to everyone else, you should do this too. And I'd like to explore this concept in the context of privilege as well, because I certainly resisted conformity very early in my legal career by ditching suits in my second year of practice, simply didn't like them. So good. So I began wearing jeans to work uh, and casual shirts, and nobody said a peep. Right. Do you think that a sort of young woman lawyer of color would have the same experience that I did? Absolutely not. Um, so you put your finger on something that's really important that I also touch on in the book, which is that authenticity is a privilege. Some of us, uh, have more ability and access to be who we really are without suffering negative consequences, uh, for our actions. When we, uh, have power privilege because of forms of supremacy, so gender supremacy, racial supremacy, class supremacy, rank supremacy within an organization, sexual orientation supremacy, and more, we're better situated to to be authentic because we will experience less biases and negative judgments. And so it's a really tricky, difficult dance to figure out as someone who comes from a marginalized community or is underrepresented or whose differences put them in the lonely only category um, at work, how to be authentic without experiencing judgment. But you know, uh, Ray, this is why I wrote the book. I wrote the book for the Rithu 20 years ago who had entered the legal profession and wanted to succeed and thrive and, and, but on her own terms of being authentic, but didn't know how to do it. I I felt like I had to change who I was to get ahead. So I wrote the book for her. Uh, I wrote the book for someone who wants to thrive and flourish in the profession, but doesn't know how to do it authentically. I also wrote the book for leaders who have power and privilege, who are who have more power and privilege to be authentic, but also to, to control the outcomes of who gets ahead and who doesn't within the profession, how how they can be more responsible and own the shifting of culture so that everyone gets to experience belonging by being authentic. And so this is what my book is all about. After the break because I'm different, you're going to judge me and you're going to treat me less fairly or you're you're going to take opportunities away from me. Today's financial tip of the day is presented by CBIA Lawyers Financial. When it comes to saving and investing for retirement, it's important to keep an eye on the fees that you pay because over time, they may or may not significantly affect the growth of your portfolio. Lower fees mean that more of your money is being invested. A 1% decrease in investment fees can result in an up to 20% increase in your assets by the time you retire. And low fees are important in retirement as well to ensure that you have access to more funds in your portfolio. In an environment of low interest rates and modest investment gains, every basis point matters. 
The Lawyers Financial Investment Program operates with very low investment management fees, but there's even more good news for CBA members. That's because as a CBA member, you will save an additional 40 basis points off the already low fees. And you can combine this offer with volume discounts for a potential savings of up to 60 basis points. Check out the many benefits of the only investment program available exclusively to Canada's legal community at lawyersfinancial.ca slash investments. So if you could share then, please, how can leaders in the legal profession help younger lawyers overcome these barriers to presenting their authentic selves in their work environments? The uh, two things I would say are as follows. Number one, it's critical to identify where you're engaging in biases. Like where, how are you, are you negatively judging others? Because my research has shown me that being on the receiving end of bias, like bias is coming your way or your fear that they're coming their, your way is what causes people to suppress their authenticity. It's the, if I, oh, if you really know who I am or, or because I'm different, you're going to judge me and you're going to treat me less fairly, or you're, you're going to take opportunities away from me. Well, if that's going to happen, I should change who I am and signal, no, I'm just like you. I'm just like you. So bias is what causes people to suppress authenticity. So as leaders in particular, who have all kinds of privilege and in particular rank privilege, it's, it's the most important thing that a leader can do in this regard is to figure out what are my biases and stop putting them out into the universe. But the second thing to do, and, and I talk a lot about this in the book, and I've already touched on this a little bit, is that leaders in particular need to model that being authentic is a really important way to live and work and lead. So bring their own differences to bear be uh, more vulnerable and share who they really are, including their hardships. So for example, I can't tell you the number of straight, white, able-bodied men uh, who are in leadership roles that I have worked with where I have said to them, have you experienced exclusion in your upbringing or more importantly in the legal workplace? And they'll say to me, hells yes, I have. And here's what it's looked like. And a lot of it for, has tied back to class. It's the, no one knew this about me, but I grew up, my parents were illiterate. Um, I, uh, my, none of my, I'm the first person to go to university. Uh, I'm making more money now than my entire village ever made like that type of thing. But I never talk about this because as it is, I feel uncomfortable and I feel like I don't fit in and I've gone out, out, out of my way to adapt and signal like, no, no, I'm affluent too. And I grew up, um, with financial comfort and all of that, as opposed to the truth, which is that, no, we struggled and it's a struggle and I still have it and I feel insecure. And, and the, the bias about white men in leadership roles is that they don't understand exclusion and that they are biased and that they are privileged and everything comes easy to them. And this is not what my work has shown me. My work has shown me that white men understand exclusion because they've experienced it too. And a lot of times it ties back to the examples I've just given you. Well, it would be um, refreshingly um, inviting to have more white leaders talk about their experiences or their challenges and with exclusion and who they are and their trouble fitting in and to be more, more vulnerable because it signals you can be more vulnerable too with me. And, and so these are, so, so a long winded way of saying 
reveal more of your personal self, like share more of your cultural identity uh, experiences and your upbringing and your uh, experiences with exclusion and your vulnerabilities so that we can normalize that that differences are okay and, and good and, and there's nothing wrong with uh, bringing our differences to bear. Well, that's a very good point. I mean, I had an upbringing that was itinerant as my family moved around frequently and every two years I found myself as the new kid in school. And the challenges that were associated with that certainly shaped uh, my personality. Mm-hmm. So I can certainly understand how that would uh, apply to other leaders that you describe in the profession. And, and you've been working in the legal profession now for about 20 years, and I'm interested in your perspective on whether or not things are changing. Are we doing better as a profession than we were? Yes, the numbers would say yes. Like we have more people of color and people from the LGBTQ communities, more women, persons with disabilities and more entering the profession than ever before and we see the we see more diversity, although it's sparing at the senior leadership ranks. So, yes, we're getting better, but the change is slow as molasses and it is painstaking how hard it is to get leaders to actually authentically uh, commit to change and to own the change. Uh, We, uh, in fact, I would say that our profession, and I work across sectors, is by far the most high-conforming, marginalizing, uh, and oppressive uh, sector or profession that I've worked with and in. And we're just really resistant to change. We're risk averse. We don't allocate enough uh, time and energy and resources to inclusion and other uh, personal and professional development areas. We uh, are extremely uh, stigmatizing with experiences around cultural identity. For example, we know that we have high levels of uh, mental health conditions in our profession, but we continue to be in a place where mental health is rarely discussed. We also don't talk a lot about physical disabilities. We, it's a rare day that you have people openly talking about faith and spirituality at work. Uh, people, women still continue to attract high forms of gender bias when they talk about children. People of color can't really talk about their experiences being of color or uh, experiencing racism in the um, workplace, even though here, for example, in Ontario, the Law Society of Ontario, we have a report rooted in research that there's a system, there was systemic findings of racism entrenched within the profession. We know this, we know this to be true. We, we know that uh, people from the LGBTQ communities continue to be in a place where maybe known that they're part of the, these communities, but they don't feel comfortable talking about who they are. Uh, we So yes, numerically, we are adjusting. And I would say, even for me to be on this podcast and talk as openly as I am today versus 20 years ago shows that, yes, we are shifting. But those it's like turtle pace. And people really, they say they care, but they don't care. And that's the problem. Um, when we care, when we truly, deeply care we take steps to bring change. We change at the individual level and we work to create systems change. And like you, Ray, are a really good example of this. Like as a white male leader, 
um, you individually are focusing on this and you are trying to interrupt the system in your leadership role now at the CBA. This is what it looks like to actually care. We need more leaders who have power, privilege, and uh, because of supremacy to own change. Rithu, if people want to learn more about the work you're doing, where can they go? So in great news, I have a lot of free uh, resources online. If you check out Rithu Basin, so my first name, Rithu, last name, Basin.com, I have videos and blogs there, tools there for you to access. You can sign up for my e-newsletter. Uh, I'm across social media on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagrams, uh, Rithu underscore Basin. Certainly wanted to note as well the quote that you used to open chapter one of your book by RuPaul. You're born naked and the rest is drag. Very interesting. And thank you very much for the illuminating conversation today, Rithu. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Thank you. Have you experienced discrimination or exclusion at school or at work because of your gender identity, race, religion, color, class, sexual orientation, or other cultural differences? Or, on the other hand, how have you experienced inclusivity? We want to hear your stories. You can reach us on Twitter at CBA underscore news, on Facebook, or on Instagram at at Canadian Bar Association. You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA channel, The Every Lawyer, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes. And to hear us in French, tune in to our Juriste Branche channel. Please listen for us next time when we'll be talking to CBA members who have been there, experienced that, and have stories to tell about it. Thanks for listening.